You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 8 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to Mechtild of Magdeburg. And I'm here with Jim, and this is part two of our reflection on listener questions. Welcome, Jim. Yes, Chris. Good. Beautiful be- first episode with the questions, and mm-hmm. looking forward to. Yeah, me too. Getting to some more, yeah. So uh, we're going to start with some questions about Mechtild the person, and uh, I'll just read the first one from Sheila, and she says. Um, I've been so enjoying the podcast about Mechtild of Magdeburg. She's typically not well known outside of Germany, so I appreciate hearing about her in an English-speaking context. Fun fact, I live in Berlin, which is not far from Magdeburg. The information about the Beguines is fascinating, and I've been really sitting with the sentence that God wants to rest weightless in our souls. I have a question about Mechtild's view of the body. The Wikipedia article in Germany states that she was a flagellant for about 20 years and had a hateful view of her body, which seems to be in great contrast with the view of Hildegard of Bingen, for example. What have you come across in your research and reading of her texts about this? And how do you think that her views influenced her spirituality? I also wonder how she could have lived for so long if she didn't take care of her physical body. Through the Middle Ages and on into when Mechtild was living, there was this um, theme in the, in the Christian tradition of doing physical penance to the body. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, sure, too, when I was in the monastery, the Cistercian Order, which was really found in the 11th century by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. We'll be doing him later in the series. And then, and then that was a reform of the rule of Benedict, which is the 5th century. And in that, in that time, so when I was at the monastery, this cloistered monastery, just before the Vatican Council, they changed a lot of this medieval stuff to that we would take the discipline. And uh, every Friday, we would go to, we slept in a common unheated door, in a dormitory with partitions, with a curtain, was a straw mattress on boards. And you would go in and close the curtain, strip to the waist, you had a whip under your pillow, a cat and nine tails. And the abbot would give the knock and everyone would whip themselves over the shoulders for the length of the psalm, a de profundis, out of the depths I cry unto thee, O Lord. And oh, heaven wow. would give the knock, you put it under your pillow and go have breakfast. And it was just part, it was just part of the thing. So my sense is it's a cultural thing. But I get the feeling that it didn't find its way into pathological attitudes towards your body. None of that comes across in her in her talk at all, quite the opposite, actually. So I think she took it in stride. And mm-hmm. uh, the same way Merton did, but the novices, he would talk about it, make jokes about it, and you know, these medieval rules and and so on. So I, I think she was freed from that. Not, not all the women mystics were, some of these mystics, they were, you can see tinges of, of where that was affecting a negative attitude towards the body. And it goes into other sources too, like Plotinus. And the Greek thing about the body and trying to rise above the body and, and so on. So it's just, you know, just part of the historical evolution of things. We're, we're lucky this way. We have our own problems today with things. Mm-hmm. But I think we do have a much healthier sense of the reality of the importance and gift of the body. And uh, you don't see that in the Catholic tradition this way. Yes, yes. Were you shocked, Jim, when you got into the monastery and were that was described to you, or did, were you expecting no, it? No, because it was so medieval, like sleeping on a straw mattress on board, they shaved all my hair off, I put on these medieval robes, you know, the monastic robes, and and um, the whole thing was so sign language, we didn't talk to each other. We didn't, so the whole thing was like mystical magic in a way. Yeah, <laughs> so I, yeah. I just took it all in stride. I found it, I found it quite fa- fascinating. Yeah, and it didn't feel hateful towards your body? No, no, no. not at all. No, yeah. I, I thought it was... Interesting. There were rumors that, you know, you close the curtain for privacy. And, and so there were rumors that some people, instead of whipping themselves, they'd hit the bed with the whip so no one would know <laughs> it. You'd, you'd hear the sound. There were rumors about who uh, was trying to get away with that. But, but anyway. And it didn't hurt too much. It hurt. Yeah, you, know, you could hit yourself as hard as you wanted. Oh. 
Yeah, you could, and especially when it was cold in the winter, Eesh. it would hurt more. It stung. It stung. It didn't draw blood. Okay. It started, but it would sting. I mean, you'd, you'd feel it. Feel it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 So. Okay, our next question is about uh, psychological versus spiritual teaching. And Carter asks, you bring up Thomas Merton's wise warning not to confuse psychological with spiritual truths. When With Mictilde, I'm struck at a psychological level at the notion of God and myself being hopelessly in love with one another. Does the spiritual feeling of this relationship differ greatly from the psychological feeling of being in love and being loved? Are they on the same spectrum of human experience or on completely different planes? I find it much easier to grasp the emotional aspects of love than the deeper spiritual aspects. Yeah, it's a, it's a subtle question, actually. Uh, St. John of the Cross says, there are some people who think a great deal is going on in their spiritual life, but in reality, before God, not much is going on. And others think nothing's happening and that guys have got a great deal is going on. And so there's all these cautions about of focusing exclusively on physiological, emotional consolations and insights and that kind of thing. But, if it's, but properly understood, I think what it is in the mystical sense, the kind of annoying does is to, is you feel that love is actually flowing from some deep hidden place within mm. and beyond yourself, but it spills over into emotional love, but you feel its origins are not in the emotions, mm. but it spills over into the emotions. It's also true that you can you can sense the purity of this divine incarnate and divine love and nothing spills over, you know. So it's a, it's a subtle thing, both to, because of the body and the soul are so intertwined, it, they delicately interface each other. It has these this interplay between the two, but it's very similar. You would, you, you would see that these feelings of love for God or God being infinitely in love with you. Uh, you could see if you're deeply in love with someone or someone's in love with you, you'd recognize in that love with this person echoes of who you experience God to be as love. That's another way that I would put it. Um, next question, Jim, is from Sandra. And she says, I don't think I would have ever attempted to connect with Mechtild's book without Jim's guidance. Jim, is there any comment you might add regarding the psychological aspect of Mechtild's contribution? You know, first of all, I think there are some deeply mystically awakened people who don't have the language for it. They just, they just bear it in the simplicity of themselves and the truth of themselves. But sometimes I think with these mystic teachers, they've also been gifted with the ability to put words that convey this oneness. And that's where you see their own giftedness coming through. As a, so, for example, Thomas Merton was very gifted uh, with words. And so Emecto was very gifted. She's very literary and very boldly creative. And, and I think that's her psychology coming through. But, but I think it's like God put it this way, like God using the giftedness of her psychology to convey God this way. But she's very... Yeah, very stunning, actually, from a literary point of view. She's very, it's quite something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was wonderful reading, getting to read her work with you. Yeah, beautiful. So a couple of questions on how to live this in the world, and I'll start with the first one. This one comes from Carissa. I'm a teacher and I'm confronted with the problems and pain and also the stressful structures of our society. Often I feel that the lessons I am learning here are hard to apply, being forced into the frames of time constraints and academic assessments. I won't jab on about the school system and all the things I wish were different. My question is this, when living in a world of demands, how does one reserve that space of vulnerability and sensitivity without being crushed by the unconscious rush of the world around? I was multitasking the other day, biking and simultaneously enjoying your podcast. I decided that right where I was, I would stop, sit down on the ground and listen to the last 10 minutes of your podcast in meditative calm. That felt real, present and not withdrawn, but very much in the midst of things. For me, though, these moments are too few and too far between. I feel that stopping and listening should be our constant mode of life. Is there hope that humankind can come to a place of honest, humble listening? I'm afraid sometimes that this is only for the few. Yes. Uh, here's some things that help me with this. You know, first of all, 
I think to uh, to sit that way on the ground, it felt real. So it shows you how helpful it is to have a rendezvous of sitting like that every day, maybe twice a day. And also, each time you end that sitting, uh, ask for the grace not to break the thread of that underlying sensitivity. So when you go into the day, it's true, there's all kinds of constraints, societal constraints, institutional constraints, and so on. And it's, and it's not always easy to kind of deal with that. But here's what I found. I used to teach high school for a number of years, high school seniors, religion. And uh, so you're dealing with the politics of the school administration. And so on. But what there was always was were the students. And I found then if I could be present to the students in a way that was continuous when I was quietly sitting, it, it allowed an encounter to happen. And it helped to keep the, the buzz of political disturbances more at the edges so it didn't intrude. You know, it didn't give it more weight than it was due, actually. Easier said than done, but it's a worthwhile thing. And, uh, but I think most of us who are contemplatively drawn, who are in the midst of the world, we have to deal with this in our own way. It's kind of, for all of us, we have to uh, find the artistry of, of, of this. Another example I use in Los Angeles here is rush hour traffic. And uh, so it's very easy to get frustrated by rush hour traffic. And the other way I thought of it then when I would be driving, I used to go a place that was further away, farther away, is uh, in rush hour, is I used to think of my car as a traveling hermitage. And uh, so if someone cut in front of me, instead of getting frustrated, I would think to myself, who knows what they're stressed with today? I'd back off like we're all in this together. We're all traveling on the highway. And when we all pull off on our own exits, it's like death. We're all on earth, we're all gonna exit someday. And by that mindset, it changed my sense of rush hour traffic, you know. And uh, so anyway, those are some things that helped me with it. That's really helpful, yeah. I hear you saying that if you can, even if it's just 10 minutes, like uh, Carissa found, but something about pausing, being still, that's a really helpful uh, grounding place. Yeah. Really, another thing that I would do too when I was um, in doing therapy back to back, trauma people, there's a 10 minute break between each session. And I would always stop. Sometimes I would walk real slow in, the, in a circle around the room and realize in a minute I was going to invite the person into the room with me. But really, I'm inviting them into my presence in hope I can help them be more present to themselves. And it would interiorly recalibrate myself again to be ready to do that. So I think there's these little meditative strategies uh, during the day itself that can help habituate these kind of sensitivities. You know. So Jim, we have a question from Greg. He says, I'm a retired Chicago police officer. The suffering and violence I've seen over 32 years has motivated me to contact you. I've heard Jim say that God re rescues us from nothing, but sustains us in all things. What does it mean that God is sustaining us in our most tragic moments, but unable to provide any immediate tangible assistance? It rings hollow and akin to a pie in the sky perspective. No violent crime victims I've dealt with, and there have been hundreds, have been fortunate enough to dissociate or have a mystical experience to help them through their immediate terror and subsequent pain. It seems to beg the question, what good is God this side of the pearly gates? The consolation provided to fortunate folks like me who derive personal comfort from daily meditation is mitigated by an awareness of the everyday horror and violence experienced by so many others. The context in which they live and the pain they carry often preclude the spiritual luxuries available to a lucky few. As a Catholic deacon, I've been a hospice chaplain for 21 years and the most difficult question I get is, where is God in all this? After trying to explain that God is with you, I frequently get a version of the above question, what good is God now? You know, I think many of us, a good number of us in our professions, were spared from ongoing repeated exposure to horrendous situations. We are. I remember I spent two years uh, in internships in two different hospitals on locked psychiatric wards, and uh, people sliced multiple suicide attempts, and very serious mental illness and a lot of them were chronically in that loop 
where they, you know, you're just that. And when I was working in private practice, they were more high functioning, but also post-traumatic stress disorder, flash, you know, just different, like the struggling world. And so he's dealing with really the just horrendous, hardened, brutal situations like this. And, um, and to me, what uh, it's it just acknowledging, first you have to know that you're drawing on inner reserves to be able to function in it, you know, that you're capable to accept the challenge because someone has to do it. Someone's on the front lines of that. And, um, and then you say, well, where is God in this? And I would say, well, it's you as a police officer. It's the law, you know? And in spite of how overwhelming the ugliness is, and it's ugly, if it wasn't for the law, it'd be a thousand times uglier, see? And so the law actually is a representative, a representative of something that makes a difference. Because without that presence, much, much worse. And that's where it is. That's where it is. And so it takes courage, though, or a certain resiliency to face that over and over and over again. When you get home at the end of the day, you carry that in your mind. And, but I would say that it's you there. Another example is where is God in all of this from a Christian terms? It's the crucifixion. You know, you are the Son of God come down from the cross. He didn't come down. He couldn't because he was nailed to it. My God, my God, see, see, forgive them, they know not what they do. See, why have you, and then he gave up, he couldn't find God anymore. Why have you forsaken me? So he's, he became our despair. See, and God is hidden in our despair, which is the mystery of the cross. It's the mystery of the brokenness. So where is God in all of this? Uh, I think it's in not losing heart, in believing uh, that in the most hardened, broken person, there's a core in them buried under all that internalized pain that belongs to God. See? And a lot of people are not realistically in the place to find it. A lot of people will die without ever being able to find it. A lot of people, actually. Yes. And uh, also on, your, on the deathbed, see, where's God in all of this? Well, it would depend. Some would say that, but my daughter, who's a hospice nurse, would say that sometimes to be doing hospice work is very mystical, really. Because a person comes to an unexpected sense, and also the people gathered around the bed with you, it's given to you what to say, and you realize you're in the presence of something extremely mysterious. And it's true, some people say, where's God in all of this? But some don't. I'm sure he would attest to that if we talked about it. Some don't. And uh, so I would offer those thoughts. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. That's a... a really hard topic to address and that was beautiful and helpful thank you so much more of that in the world at the moment too just for everyone just turning on the news you yeah exactly and there's another i would add another piece to this too about israel and the wars and peace is uh is you can feel when you're taking in more suffering than you can bear like you're getting overwhelmed and then for the sake of the world and yourself t turn it off don't listen don't listen, because we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, not instead of ourselves. If we're getting overwhelmed, we're just one more person who needs to be helped. So we, we turn it off, get regrounded in a grounded place, present to a love that transcends the suffering, but allows us to be courageously and tenderly present to it. And we're always trying to, to navigate or negotiate that sensitivity as it's given to us to do so. So some people with a trauma history, for example, they have to be extremely careful not to watch it. They have flashbacks, and so they can't watch it. They shouldn't watch it. See? Other people know it's important that I watch this. And these are my brothers and sisters. This is broken humanity. You know, and God's president. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. A couple of questions on the path and practicing. Uh, so a question from Kim. You often speak of the longing as the path. And I'm curious if you could say more about this path of longing. What do you mean when you say the longing is the path? Are there some insights you can offer to those who long on an unknown path, seemingly following something somewhere? Are there any concrete or practical considerations for this journey of longing helpful to a novice on the way? Yeah, I would say first, you know, it's a discernment question too. You'd want to listen and be sure that the longing rings true. That is, there is a longing, but you intuitively sense there's a gift in the longing. Like this. 
because the longing can be related to other things or on anxiety or depression or loss or so you want to be sure that it, that it has that quality to it that you sense the longing that keeps tugging at you there's a certain gift in the longing then it's to know and this is what all, McTell, all the mystics are saying to know that that longing that you feel is an echo of God's infinite longing for you. That God freely chooses to long for us as the beloved. And so our longing is the reciprocity of longing this way. The next thing to discover, I think, it isn't just that there are moments of graced oneness in which uh, the longing is consummated in oneness, that those moments happen. But also, you can begin to sense in a more subtle way that God's the infinity of the longing itself. So it's almost like being liberated from the tyranny of longing and the path of longing. Because somehow uh, God's present and actualized in the longing itself. One final example comes to my mind. It comes in, in, the, in the teachings of the Buddha, really, on the middle way. But it applies to the Christian, too. And it says that all mystics, you get a sense that as, as we're on the path that leads to union, you get a feeling that along the path that leads to union, you discover the, the union you're searching for is welling up beneath your feet on the path that leads to it. And there's, there's a heightened ambivalence between the union and the longing for the union become indistinguishable from each other. Mm. And I, I th that's a meaningful insight to me. Jim, our next question is from a listener who's... Uh, back listening to the cloud of unknowing, but I think a uh, question on centering prayer practice is helpful for everyone because I know a lot of people use that as their practice. So the question is, the issue I'm running into when I try to practice centering prayer is that when I try to open to God in the practice, I feel a lot of fear. Growing up, I was pretty afraid of God, who was more like a harsh judge and police officer always looking to catch me doing or thinking something wrong and sinful. However, I still feel this calling to explore this relationship more deeply. I feel I know that there's more to God than my upbringing would have me believe. But because it's from childhood, some of the assumptions have very deep roots. I have an easier time opening to this relationship in nature or when I'm out walking or riding my bike. Do you have any recommendations on how I might explore my relationship with God in centering prayer? This is my sense of it, might be helpful. That a person had uh, unfortunate experiences in the early evangelical, the versions of it that he, the unhealthy part that affects him. And um, they, they become internalized, so they're part of his inner landscape. So a triggering event, there's anything in the present that reminds you of the trauma. And the somatic levels of ourself re-experience the trauma. So to turn towards, if one was hurt by d damaging versions of Christianity, to turn towards a Christian text instead of the safety of, a, of the Dharma or the Buddhist text, how to turn to the Christian text, uh, what's happening is it triggers those feelings. Because you're, you're being triggered by the tradition that caused so much pain. So this, this would be a, a something to consider. Really, I think it's a place where a lot of people have been hurt by the church and clergy abuse and different things. It's first of all, think this through and get clear about what's happening. So those unhealthy virgins were actually regrettable distortions of the gospel, which is really that God is love and God is mercy. That's the essence. That's Jesus, really. That's the good news. And... Uh, Remind yourself of that. And the cloud of unknowing the centering prayer is a mystically awakened Christian, Christ-like person who's writing to help us find our way. And then be prepared to know that when you're, you're sitting in the prayer, be sensitive to the fact that the stirring of these painful feelings will come up. So as soon as they arise, stop at the level where they're still manageable, that is, you're aware of it. And Remind yourself where they're coming from. They're not coming from Christ. They're not coming from Jesus. They're not. Com they're coming from internalized pain. So that the adult you, with God's grace, can turn toward that hurting part or ask Jesus or ask God to help you.
to be healed and touch that hurting place inside of yourself. And then uh, back off. And you might for a while just stay away from it a little bit, like do breath awareness, do some zazen. Then return again and turn to Jesus. You might write an icon of Jesus, whatever would help you. Light a candle, like devotional sincerity this way. As soon as you feel it rising up again, ask Jesus, ask God to help you to heal that hurt that was inflicted. So what it can become really is a kind of a therapeutic transformative process of being liberated where the intensities of fear have been so felt at a level that you can tolerate, internalize, accept it, and let go of, that over a period of time, it could be a deeply transformative thing where you could return to the beauty and truth of the Christian tradition. Like, it's like finding God from your birth tradition. It's like this language of God in your mother tongue of childhood, but reclaim them the truth of the love and be healed from it. It would be part of your path. And also I found myself that the Dharma and uh, this mystical Christianity, they mutually illuminate each other. It can be very helpful that way. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yes, I didn't mention the context uh, um, of that question from Matthew that he has turned towards in Buddhism and um, is just trying to re-enter Christianity through centering prayer. So um, that context is helpful to listeners that he already has the Zen practice in place. Yeah, yeah. So Matthew, if you do try that, let us know. Love to hear how (laughs) how that goes. And Jim, this next question comes from another uh, Buddhist practitioner from Roberta, and it says, my idea of God came out of Catholicism, uh, went into evangelicalism, then a Christian cult, had an arranged marriage, divorce, raised two girls on my own. One day I found myself in the library with Robert Aitkins taking the path of Zen in front of me. I heard Zen poets tell me everything changes, everything is connected, pay attention. I dived into Buddhism practice, mainly solo, studied the teachings, still doing that, profoundly grateful for the practice of awareness of thoughts, the changed synapses in my brain, and the practice of giving myself and others loving kindness. Yet I feel I'm in between, in the bardo, not Christian, not Buddhist. Yes, a contemplative, but can't relate to the intensity of the mystic's experience with Jesus, except Merton. Still something drawing me to whom or what? can't relate to Christianity or Buddhist religiosity, hard to commit to any community. I stand in my hallway and pray, to whom? I can relate more to loving awareness, God is the universe, than personal Jesus. How to go on? Yet I'm so grateful for my life. What do we do with our concepts of God? Does it really matter? Or not knowing is most intimate. Yeah. By the way, Robert Aiken's book, I love that book. Oh, yeah. And also, maybe this person has read this already, but also someone I really liked a lot, a Buddhist teacher, Moseo Abe, in his book Dogen, His Religion and Philosophy. I found it to be so profound, really, and deep in the Dogen. So, um, but being betwixt and between these two traditions like this, there's some things to consider, some things to consider. To be betwixt and between two traditions could be a calling and a grace, because it's like this, it's like the solitude of of your own unwakening heart. See, that doesn't find a landing place in any place, which really deepens your dependence on. And you can choose your dharma word, the dharma, or God, but it's not a God that's reducible to the traditions of God, nor is it a dharma reducible to the tradition of the dharma, and therefore it, it has its own solitary clarity about it and a certain kind of inner freedom that I would think. The other approach would be, in each tradition, to take, say, one of the sayings of, of a Christian, say, a, a Christian teaching. For example, uh, Mictel, uh, God wants to rest weightlessly in our soul. Just take a sentence that's beautiful and sit with it as the beauty of the lineage of that tradition. Don't take the whole thing on, just take the fact that your own heart is touched by that's, you know, that's, that's beautiful. That's worth underlining and sitting with for a while. Then likewise, turn to something in the Dharma that just strikes you for its clarity and just, just stop there. And so little by little and incremental little pieces 
you can slowly kind of find uh, your 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 footing in this this way. And I have another image. I think you know. I don't mention this before now. Uh, years ago, there was a documentary on the BBC called "The Long Search," and a person spent uh, a month living in Israel with a kibbutz with a Jewish family going to temple and so on. Then was in Japan with a Buddhist family, then in the south of France with a Catholic family, and then in Saudi Arabia with a Muslim family and so on. And at the very end, he shared his reflections on living with all these religious people all over the world. He had this feeling that they could all get together in one place at one time to be in arguments so loud you couldn't hear yourself think. He said, but if I would gather together in one room, the panful of people that had the most profound effect on me when I was in their presence, there'd be silence and a deep respect for each other. And I think the silence would be more resounding than the yelling outside the room, outside the thing. And, uh, and I think that's the advantage of the mystics. See, the mystics, trans it's within the lineage, you transcend the lineage because it's God. And uh, people who have found that which transcends their lineage, which is infinite within the lineage, when they meet each other at the center of the circle, they recognize each other this way. And so it's a, I, I would offer those thoughts that might be helpful. Yes, very helpful. I, I often feel like poor God and Jesus, whoever they hired to do their PR campaign did a terrible job. Yeah, really. The, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist got a better PR manager. Yeah. The way I put it sometimes, you know, it's enough to make God go sit on a stone somewhere and weep. Yeah. Like, I would do all of this. <laughs> you people are doing this with it. <laughs> uh, but I guess these earlier mystics hadn't been tainted as much by some of the ways God's that, that's, been that's presented. Right. Yeah. That, that's right. And I think they were very aware in spiritual direction of people who were. And, and also in doing trauma work or prison ministry or hurt, Sometimes it's, not, it's precisely because the hurt got so deep that the light shines so bright. See, that's another way to look at it, too. Sometimes that's, that is often so true. I found in trauma work with people this way. Yeah, it's really true. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash o-n-e-i-n-g-a-r-t. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash o-n-l-i-n-e dash e-d. So, Jim, just next, some really positive comments on the coaching session that you did with me where you were my spiritual director and I reflected on that beautiful end passage of Mechtild's book that people really found that helpful and they're asking if we might do some more things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, we probably will, Jim, I guess. I think we will, exactly. You know why? Because it's like we're doing right now with the students. It's out of the dialogue the insights shine through. And so when they listen to us, like model that, the insights shine out of the dialogue and touches them. And uh, so that's how it's passed on, I think. Yeah. It's also good to see uh, someone a little bit more amateur reflecting on the text. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're great. <laughs> okay. So and, and by the way, you, you say amateur. You know that lovely book, uh, Shunu Suzuki, Beginner's Mind. Mm -hmm. and how to keep a beginner's mind, to stay a well-seasoned amateur. Because out of being an amateur, look at the insight you had. See, you, you had this clarification, which was quite good. 
And uh, the same holds true with them and their sincerity. You know, like the, the truth of God shines through in the sincerity of their seeking. It's, it shines through in their questions that we're answering. Exactly, yes. Yeah, well, I hope it really encouraged people to to do some of the Lexio practice themselves because, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope it felt encouraging, yeah. Okay, so we've got some questions about your teaching specifically, Jim, in relation to Mechtild and just some, some of your more general teaching. So the first one comes from Jack and he asks, near the end of session one you suggested that because of its richness a listener could have someone read the text of Mechtild's book on his or her deathbed. You have thoroughly read writings of so many amazing mystics. Which text or texts would you want to read at the moment when God inhales you back into the divine presence of eternal love? Well, I would say if I was trying to be cute, I'd like to have someone read my books to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I'm dying, because I'm my favorite author, and I would listen with my eyes closed. <laughs> well, that's amazing, but I won't go there. Uh, here's what I would say. Here's what I would say if I would do anything. One, uh, the, the last discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of John about mm. love. I'd like that to be read. Also, I think what I would do is certain passages in each of the mystics. So, for example, Teresa of Avila uh, on the fourth mansion, starting this, or uh, 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 St. John of the Cross on the three signs, chapter 13 of book two, that you're being called to this union. So I, I think I would have certain passages in Eckhart's sermons, just certain I'm sure all the, the students have these too at Mictelt. Everyone has a, for some reason, there's a kind of a crystalline kind of quality to it. And um, I, I, I think I would like that, but not too much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the silence that I, so those would probably be some things if I would request anything. Those would be on what I would do. You know. On your way to join them more fully. Exactly, cross yeah. over and meet them in person. Really like that. <laughs> John of the Cross could continue reading the passage where 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 we leave off here. Yeah, really. Would that be something? Really crossing over? Am I? I crossed over listening to your book. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, I was thinking too for you, Thomas Merton, because when you read his book that first yeah. time in the library and how it sparked this deep spiritual journey. Yeah, when I met him in person. Yeah. That's true. That was really something. By the way, I've had this thought where sometimes I'll say to people on the talks, this is a big crossing over into heaven and being with the saints. I think it's poetically, I think it's true. I think it's true. But we can also flip it around the other way, say reading the Bible. Notice on a retreat talk, say you're on a silent retreat, God can't come in as an unexpected guest uh, autographing Bibles, G-O-D best wishes. <laughs> Say to God, I read your book. And so, oh, I'm so glad. And, uh, but, uh, and so it, it cuts both ways. You know, God doesn't, but God interiorly signs off on your life, in your heart. Yeah. And there's something about these stirrings on this earth, these poetic intimations that are already um, tremors of paradise. I mean, I mean, I think they're celestial. I think they're the first tremors of glory. This question comes from Rob. Jim frequently refers to a quickening in the podcasts. I find this term intriguing, but also am not sure I understand it. Can you speak some about what that means? Yes. What I mean by, Mrs. use different words for this. Some use the word the touch. Um, Merton uses the word a glimpse. A Teresa, in other words, uses a taste. But by the quickening, I mean this. That, uh, for example, I'm here, I'm here at the ocean, and I'm looking, say I'm sitting out on the porch and looking out at the ocean. And as I sit and look out at the ocean, there can be like an interior reawakening of the abyss-like depth that strikes me. So it's a quickening. It's almost like when you're in an art museum or something where you're interiorly, uh, is it like a, 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 a luminosity that shines? And sometimes it can be quite intense, but usually it's, it's, it's very, very subtle. But that's what I mean by that's what I mean by quickenings. Mm. Mm. 
It's, it's like an unex, it's like the unexpected nearness of what you're looking for, stirring in the depths of your own body, you know, uh, and uh, it's, I think it's like that. So it's a, it's a deeply embodied experience. It is. Yeah. It is. It's very intimate, and also it's very, um, uh, it's very hard to explain to anybody. It's not explainable. But I think, I think what can tell the spiritual directions about, or really when we read the mystics to this way. But you can tell when you struggle to find the words to share it, like we're doing right now. Uh, in the presence of someone, you can tell that they know what you're talking about, because they've experienced it too. See, And uh, so you're together sharing what can, neither one of you can explain, but each of you can share because it stirs inside of you and you pass it on. Yeah. I think for me in that coaching session, Jim, when you asked me um, was there a prayer that was coming up and I actually just said the words from her text of, um, you know, and everything that God has done with us will suit us just fine and I started to cry, you know, I just had tears come to my eyes. Would that be another example of like a quickening? Yeah. As a matter of fact, too, in the Christian tradition, they talk about the gift of tears. You're, you're moved. And sometimes you actually cry, you actually tear up. But sometimes there's an inner weeping of a joy without foundations. See what I mean? Like you're, it's washing over you and it has no foundations, nor does it have any, nor is it in any way the result of effort. Mm. It's like a granting, the, intimately realized this way, the quickening. And then I think what happens over time is the quickening becomes more and more an underlying habitual sensitivity that's always there. You know, the consciousness of it rises and falls. But, you know, even when you're not aware of it at all, deep in your heart, there's an habituated sense that it, it abides in you this way. Yeah. A question from Marianne. Throughout all the podcasts, Jim uses the word infinity. While I have, a, I have a rather general definition in my head of what infinity means, I'm wondering if you could now fine-tune it by expounding upon his meaning of infinity in these contexts, particularly when Jim says, God is the infinity of. Can he further describe the meaning of infinity there? I want to give an image of it first, which comes to me. We share this in one of the sessions, I think. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Greek fathers of the church, he had an insight which he called glory unto glory. And I'll paraphrase it. They imagine when you cross over into God, into paradise. And imagine there's an ever-increasing intensification of the divinity of God, infinite being poured out as your very existence and your nothingness without God and the bliss of it. And he says, after you've been there for like a trillion years, and you've got, you start to get the hang of it, like, you know, all the angels on a first name basis and, and uh, you show newcomers around, get them fine. Um, that God pulls a lever and eternity begins all over again, amen. See? And that's infinity, see. It's, it's endlessness because there's no end. The Buddhists talk about before beginningless beginnings, before endless ends, it's infinity. And so the idea here would be, see, we don't know what infinity means. See, infinity just means not finite. Mm-hmm. We, we, don't know, we don't know what it is. That's why we can say, really, in the, the, the apophatic tradition of the transcendence of God, there's no, no idea of God is adequate to God at all. God's transcendent, hidden, ineffable. So Jean-Luc Marion says, when we talk of God, all we can do is search for the least inadequate words. See? And infinity is one of the least inadequate words. And it just means this, that infinity means um, not limited, but you can taste infinity in the boundaryless quality of the stirrings of your heart because it doesn't have about it the feeling of that which ends. See, that makes sense in a way. You know, there can be intimacy or deep silence or solitude, and it doesn't, it doesn't have about it the feeling of that which ever ends. And I think that's incarnate infinity intimately realized. It's incarnate boundarylessness this way. So th those would be some ways for me that I, I, what I mean by it. And you often give examples like the infinity of a tree or when you really, really love someone and you, you can't say anything uh, uh, to describe them. There's something infinite about them that's indescribable. That's exactly right. 
that when you, when you first start out, you know their qualities. But the deeper the love gets, the less, in, less inclined you would be to try to find words to express it that would do justice to who you know the beloved to be. See? And then when they return the favor, that's a sacrament of how God sees us see? and of how we see God. And I think those are like shimmering indications of the mystical experience. And I think in moments that way, we're a momentary mystic. And when it abides habitually and underneath there's a mystical dimension to our discipleship or to our life. And we learn to treasure these sensitivities. It feels infinitely clear now. Exactly. I, I love, I love, I, I, I love uh, the mystic, uh, uh, John Cusa, blessed John Cusa. We'll talk about him later. And he says, he said, it must be ineffably expressed and incomprehensibly understood. Mm. See, it's ineffably expressed as you're bearing witness to it, but you're not explaining it because it's not explainable. It's like the voice of the poet, the voice of the lover, the voice of the friend, the voice of the child. So it must be ineffably expressed to be true to it. See? But likewise, incomprehensibly understood. See, I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. But it's, there's no concept. It's not conceptualizable, but it's realizable, unexplainably in your own heart. And these mystics, I think, speak to us at that level and they awaken that in us, which I think is why we're so drawn to them, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I would add one more thing about this too. I, I would say too, see, you made her, St. Augustine, you made our hearts for thee, O Lord. See, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. It's a setup. See. So it's an arrangement by God that nothing less than an infinite oneness with the infinity of God will ever put to rest the restless longings of our heart. That's the setup. But there's a certain way in which there's a kind of a quiet resting in the restlessness. It's drawing us, it's transforming us into itself unexplainably in the passage of time and so on. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's why it's wonderful to have a teacher like you who tells us, if you just don't panic, yeah. you stay with it. <laughs> sir, sir. And the very fact you're touched by it means you're already on the path that you're seeking mm. or you wouldn't be touched by it. See? Yeah. yeah. So a question from uh, and comment from Marianne. I wonder if Jim has had a grand plan for the order in which he has chosen to present each mystic. For instance, after discussing Thomas Merton and moving to Teresa of Avila, is there a reason for the order? The reason I ask is because after the last session on Mechtild, which was so deep and so profoundly moving, I don't think I would have ever received and understood Mechtild's words if I had not learned so much from all the others who came before her. I would say this, uh, there, there's an order in some sense, but then uh, it's not after that. We, we started with Merton, and I put him first because he was my teacher. I also put him first because he's one of us, he's contemporary. See? And therefore, see, with these mystics, it isn't just the subtlety of the mystical language, but it's the subtle of a different epoch of time and history, so there's like a double... Uh, internalization process going on with, but with Merton, he's one of so 500 years from now, people will be struggling to understand Merton, yeah. you know, yeah. because the, the will be an historical epoch, and the, the the times moved on. But after that, it was I just took the mystics that have touched me over the years. The, John of the Cross was the first one, in, in the cloud, and so I just uh, yeah. So there was no arrangement. And I would say this though too. I, I, I know what you mean about being touched by Mechtel this way. Uh, but I would suggest this, that part of it is due to the accumulative effect of listening to all the mystics. Because I could have started with Mechtel, see, and ended with Merton. And you always said Merton was so profound. <laughs> so I think there's something about the accumulative effect of just leaning into this for months and years. It just... It just um, it becomes richer and richer and richer as the fruit of that kind of fidelity, too. I, that's been my experience. Yeah, I feel the same way. And it's such an encouragement to, you know, continue listening and learning and um, what a gift your teaching is to, to help us try out all these mystics and uh, get these different ways of hearing and feeling the, the sense of God's presence. Another thing that helps people, I would say this in therapy too with people, 
isn't it true that, see, how has it come to pass? You become the person who's capable of being concerned and touched by these things at the level or sensitivity that you are able. And is it not so that a year or five years ago, 10 years, it wasn't like this for you? See? So already you're on a path not of your own making. In Media Res, you're kind of in the midst of an unfolding uh, of something uh, that goes on and on. I think it's helpful to see it that way. The next question is from Phyllis. In their lifetime, did the mystics know they were mystics? If not, what was it that prompted them to write? And are we obliged to share personal experiences of God? If not, why are such experiences gifted to us? It feels like divine pursues me and I don't know how to respond. That's lovely. That's very nice. It depends. Uh, I think there are some people who are interiorly awakened in levels of subtlety. It hasn't consciously dawned on them yet of the awakening, because it, it's, it's unveiled. See, it's not veiled in beliefs, veiled in feelings, veiled in, it's, 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 it's unveiled, but it's unveiled in a veiled way. It's innermost, it's subtle. And uh, sometimes it can be there for quite some time, but we don't slow down enough to calibrate ourselves to, to the subtlety, to begin to pick up on it. So I do think that's true with this. I think the mystic teachers are people they know. They just know. In other words, they, they realize there's like a self-evident luminous clarity that's been given to them. And they also feel, this is why they teach, that it wasn't, then they were called to share it. They were called to share it as a book. And that's why they wrote. You know, they saw it as a ministry. Because they know what it's like, how bewildering it is at first, to know that this kind of language even pertains to you. It's very confusing to be a beginner, to know is this possible? And so how to be a wise beginner and so on. And the purgative way, illuminative way, immunitive way. And so they're, they're trying to help us because they know what this is like, you know? And uh, so here we are years later and we're at it. Here we are passing it on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think they, they knew, yeah. Especially the teachers. I, I remember you saying how Meister Eckhart said that he would be up teaching his sermons whether there was anyone in the church or not. He was so compelled to yeah, share. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It was a, a higher order imperative of the awakened heart. They could mm. not not do it this way. It's just given to them to do so. And similar with Mechtild feeling like. So, same way. And yeah. then I also think there's other people deeply mystically awakened who live in the anonymity of it. And they're called, they're called not, not to say a word because in the surrender to it, it touches the whole world in ways we don't understand. See, that's the thing, really. The cloud of unknowing says, don't think your ministry is located to where you live, see, because it's boundaryless in all directions. And in the hiddenness of your fidelity to this, it radiates out and touches the world. And some people are called, a lot of people, I think, are called to live it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's encouraging that when we sit and practice that, yeah, it, it, it has these ramifications. A question from Lynn. She says, I struggled with Meister Eckhart and from what you say this time, I think maybe different mystics draw in different personalities. But she's loved Mechtild, the, the starting off. She's loving how Mechtild's feeling at the beginning and how she's struggled with Eckhart. Is that true, Jim, you feel? different personalities? Yes, I, I feel, uh, I like what the Bernard McGinn uh, visiting thing that he did with us, that each mystic is, they're all on the, like the uh, symphonic oneness of mystical awareness, but they're each in their own unique way that it was given to them. Yes. And so, Mictel here, she's an ecstatic mystic. You don't get any of that in Eckhart at all. And uh, so that's really true. But there's also something else about Eckhart. He's really, uh, especially challenging, you say, especially if you try to figure them out. Because I can remember first when I was in the monastery, John of the Cross and Cloud of Unknowing. But when I read, uh, when I read Eckhart, I, I can remember struggling with it. It wasn't until years later I picked that up with a commentary and it really just had a very profound effect on me. So uh, 
I do think that, but Bernard McGinn was suggesting that if you don't try to figure Eckhart out, because he's trying to wake us up and just read one paragraph at a time and sit with it, because he's, don't forget, he was giving this as sermons in church to people just sitting there like this. And so there, there's a kind of a musical kind of resonance that touches you. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he's alluding to something that matters. And so the more we can read him in that way, uh, I think it helps to get to him. But it just shows you how uh, we need to find the mystic that speaks to us and yes. walk with it and, and be grateful for it. And little by little, your repertoire expands. Right. You know, and I think it's like that. And different times in life, you might be yeah. drawn to a different Exactly. Yeah. Very, much, very much so. Yeah. yeah. A funny question from Andrea. She said, a random question, but I can't let it go. I would love to know why the monastery had pigs if the diet was vegetarian. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> they had pigs because uh, it was a huge farm. It's thousands of acres, a lot of wood and fields and so on. So they ran a farm. And so for the farm, they had a big dairy herd. And they used the dairy herd for the cheese because they sold cheese. And along with fruitcake and that's how they made a living. Because their, their Benedictine monasteries are meant to be self-sufficient. So Trappist jam, Trappist fruitcake, Trappist thing. And the, hogs, and the hogs were sold for market. It was a hog operation. And they also had some beef cattle, I think, also. But it was a farm. They had a huge farm. They had the farm brothers, the lay brothers who, uh, you know, worked on the farm. And, and I worked in the pig barn. I worked um, in the calf barn and uh, sometime at the dairy barn. I liked it because it's a city. I never got to work with animals before. But anyway, so that, that's why. Yeah, pig barn, yeah. yeah. Amazing time in your life. It was. It was. So we're coming to the end of our questions. Uh, I had one last one I just wanted to read to end, but we obviously don't have time to get to every single question on the podcast, but we read every single one. And I'm remembering your description of quickenings and I know reading these questions for me is just a very um, amazing experience. And so gratitude to everyone who wrote in and then co-created what I'm sure is a very helpful couple of sessions for people who've, who listen. Um, I was just going to end with this note that came in from Eileen and she said, Dear Jim, last year I was reading over and over the life and books on St. Teresa of Lisieux. I had read her biography many decades ago and also the biographies of major mystics. I was drawn to them but lacked the guidance I needed to continue learning from them. Now in my 87th year, I find myself completely immersed in the mystics under your guidance. I feel that St. Therese led me to you via Father Richard Raw. I am so deeply grateful to you for opening me to the intimacy of God's love. My life has changed completely. You say that because you are 80 years of age that there isn't much time left. I want you, selfishly, to live for 20 more years so that I and so many others who listen to the podcast will grow so much more closely to the heart of our dear God. We'll begin to love him as you do. Everything is possible with God. Thank you, Jim, with all my heart and soul. Oh, sweet. That's very, that's very loving. I share something about Teresa of Lisieux. We're going to talk about her, too, as one of the mystics. Mm-hmm. And I think she died at 26 years old, I think. She was oh, a cloistered yeah. Carmelite nun. And she wrote a book called The, she, the Little Way. The little flower, and uh, Mern had a deep devotion. She's a doctor of the church, and uh, this little way, this way of love. And uh, so, when I was a monk at the monastery, I had a devotion to her, and I had a relic. I had a lock of her hair, oh. and a little gold locket, and I kept it pinned over my heart under my scapular oh. on the little way. I had this devotional, you know, sense of her. She was one. Of, she had really affected me that way too. Wow, beautiful. uh, Yeah. So anyway, that was a a lovely way to end. A lovely way. And I I just want to say, I'm sure, along with everyone listening, amen, Eileen. We all hope you're here for another 20 years. Oh, we'll see. I mean, we'll see what what God has in mind. You know what I mean? I I understand. I appreciate the sentiment, though. I do. do. How amazing, too, that someone in their 87th year is coming to these wonderful yeah, yeah. realize and changing her life it just seriously, gives seriously. Every, all of us hope that 
as awesome. many. You never know, seriously, in the 11th hour. Just, uh, yeah, just, uh, seriously, it's beautiful. Anyway, great season. This was a great yes. season and Mystic so lovely and so good. So, and I think we pick up again in January, I think. There's more And so anyway. Yes, yeah, thank it was you. Lovely. Thank it was beautiful. You. And thank yes. you, Kirsten, for the dialogue. It really facilitates and Corey. And yeah, the, thank you, Corey. It's a team, team effort. It's a team yeah. effort. May God bind us all. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.